Well, our sermon text today is Galatians 4, verse 21 to 31. In preparing for this text, I came across this quote from Alistair Begg. He said, it is the consensus that verses 21 to 31 of Galatians chapter 4 are the most difficult verses in the whole of the book of Galatians. Oh, good. Well, that said, it is especially appropriate that we should ask God for his aid, his power, his wisdom, and especially his spirit to help us in understanding that which we're about to look to. So would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we readily admit that we are unable to know you apart from the working of your spirit. And so we pray that your spirit would indeed be at work within us now. And we realize that your word is not just mere ink on paper, but rather your word is alive, it is living, it is active. May it be active in us even now. And Lord, give us hearts that are ready to receive your word. Give us ears that are ready to hear what you have to say. Give us eyes that can see you in your word. For we ask it in the name of Christ Jesus, who is the living word of God. Amen. Here now, Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. This is the inspired word of God. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. 
Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we were to have a title for this sermon, it would probably be something like A Story of Two Women. Because that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at a story about two different women. And as we look at it, just as kind of an outline of sorts, we will first quickly look at the background of the story. And then Secondly, we'll look at what happened in the story. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, we will look at what the story represents. So the background of the story, what happened in the story, and what the story represents. First of all, the background to the story. We need to understand the historical background into which this whole passage has been written. We've talked about it for many weeks now as we look at the book of Galatians. The context is Paul is writing to churches that he has planted and he has moved on from, but now Judaizers have come into the church. They have infiltrated it, as it were, and are looking to tell those who have trusted in Christ that that is not enough. That it is great to trust in Christ for salvation, even necessary to trust in Christ for salvation, but there is another step they must take. They're saying that they must also adhere to the Jewish rituals and rules and laws that have been set in place for the ceremonial practice of Judaism. In essence, they're saying you must become a Jew in order to truly become a Christian. There is a human background, something that is common, I think, to human nature. We tend to think of ourselves probably a little more than we ought to. We probably tend to think of ourselves as as a little better than we actually are. Galatians 4.21 says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? It seems that lots of religious people want to be under the law sometimes, right? Religious people have a tendency to think that that they think they can be good enough to merit God's favor. I don't know, as you come here today, you might be here for the first time, and you might not be a particularly religious person. You might just be here watching and listening and seeing what's going on here, and and you have a certain idea about religious people. They're those people who who are just trying to be goody-goodies all the time, follow all the rules, and and they think that by some way they can do that and be better than everyone else. And frankly, there are religious people who think that way. Sometimes in the church we think that way. Sometimes we think that that if we do well enough, we can please God and we we can earn our right standing before him. But while being good enough might be one way to reach God, there is one problem, and that is that none of us is good enough. There's not a single one from 
from the worst of us to the best of us who can stand on our own two feet before a holy God and say, accept me because I've earned it. Accept me because I am righteous in and of myself. Accept me, I've done enough good deeds, I've, I've tallied enough positive points that I deserve your blessing, Lord. And yet, that's often how we think. That's the human background. There's a biblical background to the story. Verse 22 tells us, For it is written, and it's talking about in the book of Genesis, it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. We need to go back to Genesis to understand the background, the context here. In Genesis 12, the Lord came to Abraham and, and he said uh, that you should go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you. This is the, the calling of Abraham. He was Abram at the time. God had not yet changed his name. He said to Abram, I will make of you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's many promises in this. We don't have time to go into all of them. I just want to focus on the one promise he says here, I will make of you a great nation. This is just one person. He says, out of you will come a great nation. You will have so many descendants, as it were, that it will be a, a nation, and not just any tiny nation, but a great nation out of you. That is the promise of God. And what's Abram's response? Well, we read in verse 4 of chapter 12, so Abram went, as the Lord told him. Basically, he trusted God. He believed God. God told him one thing, and he trusted him. In short, he had faith. Fast forward to Genesis 15, three chapters ahead. Abram's kind of wondering what's going on, because he's been promised that he's going to be the father of this great nation. And he still doesn't have any kids. And he's wondering what's happening, and he's thinking, well, maybe... Eliezer of Damascus will be my heir. This is a, a servant he had. He said, maybe, maybe he's going to have to be my heir and something will happen. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, we read in chapter 15, verse 4. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. You see what God so graciously did to him as, as Abraham's faith was kind of flagging, as he was doubting the promises that God had made to him. God came to him graciously and encouraged him in his faith to believe him. And he even gave him a sign and says, look to the stars and see how numerous they are. So shall your offspring be. And we read, and he believed the Lord. And God counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. God promises, Abraham trusts. That's the equation. God promises, and we trust. That's the whole of it. That's, that's really, when we get down to it, what we need to do. Let's 
Fast forward one more chapter to Genesis 16. God had promised to make Abraham a great nation. He had promised him natural offspring, but he still had no children, and he was getting old, very old. And perhaps even more importantly, his wife was getting old. In fact, she was already past the years where one could naturally expect to give birth. Some of you know that longing, longing to have a child, longing to, to have a family, longing to, to be able to be together and experience that blessing of the Lord, and you know that, that it can be a, a painful longing. That is what Abram and Sarai experienced It was perhaps even worse for them. They had specifically been promised by God that they would have that blessing. And yet here they are waiting, waiting, waiting. So they decided to take things into their own hands. We'll get this done. God seems to, to be asleep at the wheel here, so we'll take care of us, they say. As a side note, how often do we do this? How often do we do this where instead of just trusting in God, we try to accomplish things in and of ourselves. We say, God, I know you're good. I know you're trustworthy, but I think I need to do something here to get things taken care of because you're not quite taking care of things the way you're supposed to, right? Sometimes we do that, but we need to trust God even when it doesn't look like we can trust him. You see, this is precisely where the Judaizers were failing, you know, as Paul Paul spoke against them, right? They, They were saying, essentially, God is great. Jesus is wonderful. He died for your sins. We, we, that's all good news, and that's wonderful, but now I need to do my part. I need to take control of the situation. I need to do certain things to enable myself to be right before him. I need to do something to merit his forgiveness. I need to do something to earn my way. I need to do something so that I deserve it. That's how we tend to think in general, isn't it? We, we want to earn our way. We don't just want the good things. We want the good things, but we want to know or at least believe that we deserve the good things, right? That, that we didn't just get lucky, as it were, but we, we earned it. We worked hard. We did our part, and we deserve it. I suspect today many of you will watch a football game this afternoon. Uh, some of you will sit in front of a TV while a football game is on so you can watch the commercials. And while you watch those commercials today, I just want you to take note of one thing. Take note to how many of the advertisements either flat out say or at least have as a subtext the idea that you deserve their product. Right? Whatever it is, it's something good, it's something wonderful, it'll help your life, but it's not just that, they'll tell you. They'll tell you, you deserve this. We want to believe that. We want to think that. We want to feel that. And that's certainly a danger. Well, 
it'll cause us to take things into our own hands sometimes. We'll start following legalistic mindsets. We'll try to earn our way. We'll try to deserve our blessing from God. We'll try to do these things. That's not to say we shouldn't live out lives of holiness. Of course we ought to. But we must always understand that, that the holy actions of our lives are not things that help us to earn or deserve the blessing of God, but rather should be, as we read about in our Unison Scripture reading, fruits worthy of repentance, right? They should be fruits of forgiveness that we've already received as we've repented of our sin and turned to Christ Jesus, trusted in his payment for our sins, in his taking of our penalty upon himself, of his purchase of our salvation for us, his free gift of salvation. And in response to that, repent of our sin and bear fruits worthy of repentance. Sadly, sometimes it's not our faith that is driving us. Sometimes we're driven by a lack of faith, even an unbelief. Even someone like Abraham, who is, who is lauded as a man of faith, father of the faith. And yet there are times that he fails miserably to trust God twice in the story of Abraham, we see he literally gives up his wife to another man to protect himself. And now he's going to trust in his own plan rather than God's. So we look to what happens in the story, the second point. Uh, and we're going to fly through some things pretty quickly here, but in, in Genesis 16, we read of this plan that, that uh, Abraham and Sarah come up with, or Abram and Sarai at that point, they're still known by those names. Uh, Abram's, I think, 86 years old at this time. Sarai's a decade younger, 76. And they come up with this plan. They say, well, what we'll do is, is we'll just have Hagar, who was Sarah's uh, servant, her slave. They said, she will bear a child for us. And so there, there are all sorts of ethical and moral problems with this. And we don't have time to go into all of those either, but we can just rest in this, rest on this one point, that Abraham is at that point not trusting God to work out things the way he should, and he is taking things into his own hands. He's working against the promises of God and actually not working in concert with them. As we move on to Genesis 17, we see, this is some 13 years later, God promises Sarah that she will give birth to a son. It's hard to believe. She's 89 at this point. It's a crazy promise. But that's the thing about the promises of God. No matter how crazy they might be, if it is God who is promising them, they can't be trusted. And so it was that God demonstrates his grace to Abraham and Sarah, even when they had sinned against him, trying to take things into their own hands, even when they've sinned time and time again. In Genesis chapter 21, Isaac is born. 
We see verse 23 of today's text coming back to Galatians. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Paul's saying this actually happened. He said there was this slave woman's child that was born according to the flesh, according to the the normal plans of people's uh, ways of doing things, but but the, the free woman's child was born through promise, not through any natural way of doing things, but through the promise of God, which overrides all of the, the different systems and the different understandings and the way of things that we would do things. He's saying not only is this a true story, something that actually happened, but verse 24, this may be interpreted allegorically, and so we come three now to what the story represents. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. Verse 24 tells us these two women are two covenants. And the two covenants that he's speaking about are are two covenants that God has made with his people. One with Moses through the law and, and the other through Abraham and through his promise. And they're set apart against each other. First, Hagar representing the first covenant that we talked about there, the one with Moses in the law. Hagar was a slave, and so her children would be slaves too. Ishmael was born into slavery, born by a a natural birth, as we said, not like we talk of natural childbirth, although that probably was true too. But what we're talking about here is just being born according to the flesh, according to the way things naturally happen. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, verse 25 tells us, and there's a couple things that this is telling us. One is that that her descendants, the descendants through Ishmael, are Arabs, actually, and that's probably part of why this is the the analogy here, the metaphor that's being used. It's actually those who are Arabs are the descendants of Ishmael, and so Mount Sinai, since it is actually located in Arabia, it makes sense that that would be uh, the, the mountain that would represent her. But beyond that, and perhaps even more importantly, Mount Sinai is also the mountain upon which God gave the people of God the law. He spoke to Moses and, and gave him the law. If we go to Exodus 19, he, he tells Moses to tell the people, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Did you catch the conditionality of that there? If. Then you shall be a treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses takes this message to the people of Israel, and he tells them, and all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then Moses gets the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, and more laws through all the way through to chapter 23, and Moses in chapter 24 of Exodus comes to the people and says, all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered once more with one voice and said, 
all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. Do you catch the fact that they have here sworn, they've, they've agreed, they've said, yes, those are good rules, we're good with that, we'll follow those rules and we'll be God's people. They've sworn by their own behavior, by their own actions, and so that is the standard by which they'll be judged. But like Hagar, Ishmael and all her children are slaves, and so by swearing to come under the law, you've become a slave to the law. It is what rules. That's why Paul said in verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? You say, have you, have you actually read the law? <laughs> because, because this is kind of like, you know, one of those things, you know, the terms and conditions, click here if you agree. No, okay, whatever, right? You don't even know what you agreed to, he's saying. Because if you knew, you would never want to be under it because you fail miserably at it all the time. So now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. Now this is kind of weird. It says, wait a second. She's Mount Sinai in Arabia, but she's Jerusalem. How, How can that be? Well, what he's saying here is that Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish faith, the center of the Jewish people, right, is more like Arabia than it ought to be as Jerusalem. He's saying, by coming under the law, you've made yourself outsiders. If you really want to come under the law, as the Judaizers are saying you should, then you are a spiritual outsider. You are no longer actually living as children of Abraham. Right? It's what we said in the Unison Scripture reading today. Right? John says that, that, that you, you should not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. You see, so, so the present Jerusalem, the present center of the Jewish faith, was one that was saying, I can keep these rules and I can be holy before God. He's saying, no, you can't. You will fail. But contrary to the present Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above, verse 26, is free and she is our mother. The Jerusalem above is, is the church, the church, uh, the, the, the invisible church. It's the church that, that in Revelation 21, we read, will come down from, from heaven and will be with us and we will be with uh, it. And the church corresponds with Sarah, who unlike Hagar the slave woman is a free woman. And so in the message that the church brings, the gospel, we are set free. Like Isaac, the child of the free woman, he was free. He was a son. He was there to inherit. And so are we. He was one who was born by supernatural birth. And so are we. As the Spirit of God has taken our dead, stony, sinful hearts and made them alive, fleshy hearts that can respond to God in love and worship. And so she is like Mount Zion, that holy mount from which God eternally worships and where we gather with him. And the covenant that she corresponds to is a covenant based on promise. A covenant based on promise. At Sinai was the old covenant 
where the people would swear, all this we shall do. But in God's covenant with Abraham, you remember what he did when he set the animals out, split them apart, and went through by himself. Instead of the people of God saying, all this we shall do, God says in the new covenant, all this I have done. It is finished. It is complete. In the old covenant, God says, thou shalt do and thou shalt not do this and that. And it's all based upon what we do. But in the new covenant, instead of saying, thou shalt do again, God says, I have done in the person of Jesus Christ. I have lived a perfect life. In the person of Jesus Christ, I have fulfilled all righteousness. I have atoned for the sins of many. I have conquered sin and death. I have purchased you out of your slavery to sin and redeemed you to freedom. I have found you dead in your sins and given you new life and life eternal. He works miracles. Whereas Hagar and Ishmael represented natural birth by the work of man, so Sarah and her son Isaac point us to the supernatural birth. Just like the supernatural birth that is ours in Christ Jesus through his Spirit's work in us. You see, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And whenever Paul talks about the gospel or thinks about the gospel, he just breaks out into worship, into song. And in verse 27, he does this quoting Isaiah 54, verse 1. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not labor for the child of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. It's not just true of Sarah, it's true of the church, the Jerusalem above, of the the people of God. The kingdom of Israel was just a, a temporary pale shadow of the eternal kingdom that belongs to those who trust in Christ Jesus. And so we're no longer awaiting the fulfillment of promises to a national Israel, but rather we see that those promises have been fulfilled in Christ so that we, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. Just as at that time, he who was born, verse 29 tells us, according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now he's referring to the Judaizers who would persecute them, right? But what does he say? So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. He says, reject the Judaizers, turn from them. Don't believe what they have to say. Their gospel is not a gospel at all. Trust in the gospel that says you are saved by Christ and his blood alone. Trust in the fulfilled promises of God in Christ Jesus. If you do, then you are free indeed. No longer under a covenant of works, but rather under a new covenant. The covenant of grace. That is something that Christ made specific in this meal. In the Lord's Supper, for he writes that I received from the Lord But I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread when he had given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, in the same way, 
He also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is what? It's the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Realize that as we come to the table and he bids us to do so in a worthy manner, that does not mean come to the table only if you are holy. (laughs) Come to the table only if you have no sin in your life. No, what it means is confess your sin to the Lord. Repent of your sin. And come to the table knowing that forgiveness is yours only at the cross. Only in Christ Jesus. And know that we are his body. Knit together with one spirit in us all. And so we eat this meal not as individuals on our own but as one body, one family, one church, together in a shared meal. Would you pray with me?